Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For decades, politicians and business leaders have told us that today's challenge is growing the economy, that environmental protection can be left to future generations. Amy Larkin, in her book Environmental Debt, The Hidden Costs of a Changing Global Economy, says that in the wake of billions of dollars in costs associated with Hurricane Sandy, wildfires across the West, groundwater contamination from drilling, it's clear that yesterday's carefree attitude about the environment has morphed into a fiscal crisis of epic proportions. And she argues that the costs of global warming, extreme weather, pollution, other forms of environmental debt are wreaking havoc on the economy. She cites coal as an example. Despite coal's relative fame as a so-called cheap energy source, Americans pay $350 billion a year for coal's damage and business-related expenses, polluted watersheds, and health care costs. She says that as companies and nations struggle to strategize in the face of global financial debt, many businesses have begun to recognize the causal relationship between a degraded environment and a degraded bottom line. Amy Larkin is former Solutions Director for Greenpeace USA. Her consulting firm is Nature Means Business. She'll be speaking at Utah State University as a part of the Partners in Business Operational Excellence Conference for the OSU Huntsman School. That is on Thursday, October 3rd, 9.40 a.m. and 1.15 p.m. in the Eccles Conference Center on the OSU campus. And that evening, Thursday evening, October 3rd, 6 p.m., Engineering 103, she'll give a presentation for the USU Quinney College of Natural Resources. Amy Larkin, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. A pleasure to be here, Tom. Thank you. So your idea is environmental debt. In, In brief, what is environmental debt? Environmental debt is defined as the polluting and or damaging actions that will cost other parties, people, businesses, or governments, real money in the future. So right now, if you are producing a computer or jeans or T-shirts or anything else we buy, when you, as a company, you use water, you emit chemicals into watersheds, you pollute using energy, most of those costs you do not account for. Somebody else pays for them. And so, as I say, currently the rules of business and the laws of nature are in collision. Our job is to harmonize them. Every financial transaction has an environmental impact and the environment is embedded in every financial transaction. And that is how the financial and environmental crises are connected. And you do say that uh, nature and business, nature and money, are always interconnected. Uh, I wonder if you could expand on this example of coal. I think this this illustrates it very well. It's known as a uh, so-called cheap energy source. And it drives me crazy every time someone says that. It will hurt the economy. In fact... Coal, at the minimum, has about $350 billion a year of impacts on the environment, ranging from watersheds to developmentally disabled kids in school to health care costs to boom and bust cycles to harming fishing industries to destroying arable land, all kinds of things that we do not pay when we buy the energy for eight cents a kilowatt hour we pay in our taxes and even in the state of kentucky where coal is king a local community economic development agency did a study i believe it's 2008 it's in the book where they show that just about subsidies not these extra environmental debt external costs kentucky lost $115 million on its subsidies to coal every year. So it all is not what it appears. And as we know, the bookkeeping in our government agencies is not particularly transparent or keen. So I wonder if you could spend on, on, on that part of it. Uh, you know, I take your point that we're the businesses are not accounting for these costs. They're not required to bear these costs. It's passed on to governments, passed on the consumer, passed on the health care you know, providers. Um, but, and just to clarify, when we say the government, it's you and me. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we uh, bumble along with the uh, status quo. What's, what's the danger there, then? We, we know there are costs. We'd, you know, it's just over at the government. Uh, why should we transfer that over to the businesses and have them account for it? Well, I think it is transferring it over to the business and the consumers. I think that we, as people who are accustomed to buying things very cheaply, are part of the, the problem. I would rather pay for the full cost of my T-shirt, my computer, or my energy when I buy it, as opposed to at a later date in my taxes after the damage is done. So here's an example. Hurricane Sandy in my backyard in New York City will cost some, you know, depending on who you're talking to, be already $100 billion, probably $150 billion, maybe $200 billion. That was very clearly a climate change event. The big damage came from the surge. It did not come from the hurricane. So you could say or not say that it was extreme weather that caused the hurricane. It wasn't even a hurricane when it landed. But the surge was 100% caused by warmer water and a jet stream that is not functioning normally because of the warmer water. So you and I as federal taxpayers, local taxpayers here, insurance companies are all paying for the rebuilding, the recovery, the emergency services, a, a huge amount of lost uh, labor and lost business opportunity, and we're paying for that as taxpayers as opposed to, on the other side of the ledger, imagine if we had preventive, good, low-carbon economy that would prevent this from getting any worse because the floods in Colorado, the floods in Mexico, Every day, every one of us reads about 500-year weather events, and they are hugely costly, and wouldn't you rather pay before it happens so the damage doesn't happen as opposed to as a victim, as a taxpayer, or as another business? That is the loop that we have to close. That is a connection we have to make. You have a uh, you write uh, posts for the Huffington Post, and uh, th- this one interested me. Uh, the headline: Countries and companies can agree something's got to give. And you, you give an example of uh, of China. China apparently their uh, Ministry yeah. of Environmental Protection has estimated and they put it out there: the cost of environmental degradation. They put that at two hundred thirty billion for uh, twenty ten, about three point five percent of gross domestic product. So, Tom, if they say it's 3.5% of GDP, what do you think it really is? Yeah, yeah, it's probably, probably higher. You're, you're suggesting that the uh, U.S. ought to do this, come, you know, come forward with a, with a number. Well, I think that, very interestingly, there are a lot of companies that are developing what they're calling environmental profit and loss standards. So there's a few other pieces of data I'd like to share. Puma the sportswear company, for 2010 worked with PricewaterhouseCoopers and a smaller firm called TrueCost and measured what they, they created what they called an environmental profit and loss statement. And it showed that if they were to pay for the degradation that they caused for water use, greenhouse gas, land use, air pollution and waste, it would come to $193 million, which was 72% of their annual profit. Now, you would think that, personally, on my end, I thought that was quite a courageous move to state this is what we are costing the world and we want to push for paying for it. We want to change the rules of business so that the biggest polluter does not make the biggest profit. And that is the problem. So KPMG did, a, did another study. So we're talking big financial service companies, Pricewaterhouse, KPMG. These are the biggest financial service companies in the world. KPMG did a study where they showed that 
In 2008, the 3,000 largest public customer companies were estimated to be causing $2.15 trillion of environmental damage that they are not paying for, you and I and others globally are paying for. And that comes to about a dollar a day per person on the planet. And obviously, people on our end are causing a lot more than a dollar a day and other people who are much, much poorer and do not fly and have cars and do the things that we do and hair dryers uh, are causing much less than a dollar a day. So these costs are stratospheric and when we talk about our public budgets, which Obviously, we're in the throes of yet another huge public budget fight. We have to look at this side of the ledger. We just keep throwing out, you know, health care costs going up. Well, some of it, in fact, is from air pollution. Newest studies show air pollution is as costly for mortality as is tobacco. But somehow, air pollution does not have the stigma that tobacco has. So I think that counting the number, uh, counting the data of the costs is a good beginning, but I think we have to change the way we think. We have to think about the environmental impact of every one of our financial transactions. We're talking with Amy Larkin. Uh, Amy Larkin is... uh a former solutions director for Greenpeace USA. Her consulting firm is Nature Means Business. She is speaking on the Utah State University campus on Thursday, October 3rd, next week. Uh, So for the USU Huntsman School of Business, the Partners in Business Operational Excellence Conference, that's in the Eccles Conference Center on the USU campus on Thursday, October 3rd. Um, And she's speaking again at 9.40 a.m. and 1.15 p.m. Later that evening, 6 p.m., on the USU campus for the USU Quinney College of Natural Resources, a presentation in Engineering 103, that one free and open to the public. The book is Environmental Debt, the Hidden Costs of a Changing Global Economy. We'll get into uh, a three-step plan that Amy Larkin has put forward. Um, including, I think, step one, pollution can no longer be free. And we'll uh, bring this to Utah. We'll uh, talk about Salt Lake and uh, Logan and the Uinta Basin's air pollution problem and uh, the costs associated with that following a break. This week in This American Life, a police officer, Adrian Schoolcraft, decides that he's going to wear a secret tape recorder on the job. He records roll calls where cops are told that their boss wanted more tickets issued or they'd be disciplined. He wants at least three seatbelts, one cell phone. Adrian Schoolcraft also records police being told not to file reports on the worst crimes to help their numbers. But then the police go after Adrian Schoolcraft this week. Saturdays at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the 11th Annual Moab Folk Festival, November 1st through the 3rd, featuring artists David Lindley, The Steelbills, Marley's Ghosts, Moores and McCumber, and others. With food vendors and arts and crafts from around the globe, more at moabfolkfestival.com. For decades, politicians and business leaders have told us that today's challenge is growing the economy. Environmental protection can be left to future generations. Amy Larkin, in her book Environmental Debt, The Hidden Costs of a Changing Global Economy, says that in the wake of billions of dollars in costs associated with Hurricane Sandy, wildfires across the West, groundwater contamination from drilling, it's clear that uh, our attitude must change. Uh, Counting must change. Business practices must change. And she's proposing some uh, government policies which can uh, change this to uh, bring those costs uh, forward in our minds and help to uh, solve some of these uh, problems. And she uh, says that uh, there are some businesses that have begun to recognize this causal relationship between a degraded environment and a degraded bottom line. We'll get into some more of those examples as we go along. Uh, Amy Larkin is uh, speaking on the Utah State University campus on Thursday, October 3rd. 
The Partners in Business Operational Excellence Conference will be ongoing then. It runs the second and third. Uh, that's in the Eccles Conference Center on the USU campus. Amy Larkin's uh, talks are 9.40 a.m. and 1.15 p.m. at that conference. And she'll give a presentation that evening, Thursday, October 3rd, 6 p.m. in Engineering 103 on the USU campus for the USU Quinney College of Natural Resources. That one uh, free and open to the uh, public. Amy Larkin, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, and you cite this in one of your columns for Huffington Post, the uh, the, the bad air. We Boy, over the winter, uh, it seems like every week we were on the air here talking about this. People were just up in arms. Um, it, it, bad air in Cache Valley in the Salt Lake, the Wasatch Front. Uh, we have some uh, air pollution problems in the Uinta Basin. Um, talk a little bit about this linkage between uh, those costs and how they're borne now and, and how you think they, they should be accounted for. Well, you know, um, I read about that. It even made the front page of the New York Times your air. It was, um, and frankly, I, you know, living in New York City where we're all accustomed to having dirty air, I was shocked to learn about this. And, uh, you, you know, it makes sense. If you think about it, if you step out of where you are and you think, well, of course, we're in a basin and we all drive. And the health care costs associated with that are tremendous. And um, it costs respiratory, heart disease, and lung cancer on an ongoing basis. And um, we pay for that. We pay for that in suffering, and we pay for that as taxpayers with stratospheric health care costs. And in my mind, if we were to do two things, as a society agree that good mass transit was worth the money because it will save money in the long term, it is, and as consumers or travelers, as people who are commuters and leisure travelers, if we were to agree, you know, I would rather take mass transit, bike or walk or carpool or whatever it is. It's not only up to the government to do it and not only up to businesses. It is up to us as individuals to make these connections and say, of course I want to be part of the solution. And... The amazing thing to me, as I've worked with many, many businesses over the last 10 years, is that business is so far ahead in understanding the impacts of pollution and extreme weather. So they are in a very odd position in that businesses, many businesses, are absolutely ready to advocate for a price on carbon, to advocate on good water policy, advocate for paying more for waste, because their only concern is that the biggest polluter doesn't make the biggest profit and that there is a level playing field. But businesses, in a funny way, are more astute to the fact that no nature no business. Mm. And it, it's, a, it's this odd moment that I've experienced. Obviously, there is a schism in the business world. There are businesses that are fighting for doing continuing business as usual. But when PricewaterhouseCoopers and KPMG, who certainly service most of the largest businesses in the world, come forward with big, strong financial statements claiming the cost of environmental degradation, something is changing because their clients would like to make a level playing field. And that is why I have proposed three basic rules. And if you'd like, I can just jump uh, right into uh, them. Well, let's uh, let's take a uh, comment by email first. Okay. And then we'll get into those. Uh, this is from Charles Ashers. Thanks, uh, Charles. Uh, just a, a brief uh, couple of sentences. He says, one way to think of it is we already have a carbon tax. For some of us, it's the perfect form of taxation, as we've convinced ourselves we're not paying it. 
You know, that is so interesting. I haven't thought of, thank you, Charles. I am going to use that if that's all right with you. We do already have a carbon tax, and it, that's beautifully said. It is, in fact, our health care costs, our labor costs, our water degradation costs. It's our taxes, and it's insurance rates. So for the insurance of flood, fire, drought, crop insurance, that we are all paying. We pay both with public funds, crop insurance, flood insurance, and private funds, home insurance, etc. We are paying. You're exactly right. We do have a carbon tax, and I would rather pay for it where I use the carbon so that I use less of it, and that companies that want to use less of it will be incentivized to do this. I don't want to destroy the companies. I want to incentivize them so they get to do what they want to do. I tell a story in the book about a PepsiCo plant, which they built in Arizona, and it's state-of-the-art. It's, uh, they own Frito-Lay, and it's a state-of-the-art plant, and it uses near-net-zero wastewater and energy. And they did a lot of breakthroughs, and it was pretty expensive to do. And when the engineer who built it uh, was explaining it to me, he was rightfully very excited about it, and as I was. And I said, so I presume now you're going to take all these breakthroughs and deploy them around the world? And this is a conservative guy. And he said to me, Amy, if water costs what it should cost, we would do it. If waste costs what it should cost, we would do it. If energy costs what it would cost, we would do it. But even though it will save money and wastewater energy within five years, in the short term, as a corporation, we will be penalized for spending this extra money. That is crazy. I mean, literally, that's just, that is where I started the rules of business and the laws of nature are in collision. On every level, as citizens and as part, you know, taxpayers, I want to incentivize a company like Pepsi so that every time they do this fantastic breakthrough work, they get to deploy it and reward it for deploying it globally. I don't want to have... in the fact that it is... Hard for them to do it is literally a very, very bad policy framework. And thank you, Charles, for noting it. In fact, there is a carbon tax in the wrong place. We are speaking with Amy Larkin. She's former uh, Solutions Director for Greenpeace USA. Um, and her book is Environmental Debt, The Hidden Costs of a Changing Global Economy. She's coming to Utah next week for a couple of appearances on the Utah State University campus, so you'll have a chance to interact with her uh, directly there. But before that, you have a chance to interact with Amy Larkin and uh, get uh, your comment or question out to uh, fellow listeners uh, by uh, telephone, 1-800-826-1495. We'd love to get your perspective on this, one 800 826 Perhaps you can tell us what you're doing in uh, in your lifestyle. Always interested to, to hear how uh, people's principles are implemented in their life. 1-800-826-1495, or you can do what Charles did. Email us, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, so, Mia Larkin, you, you have uh, three three bullet points in your plan. What are those? The first one is pollution can no longer be free and can no longer be subsidized. So an example of this is obviously we all know about large agricultural subsidies or large energy subsidies. But most of us also know that there is a huge dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico off Louisiana and Mississippi because of fertilizers and pesticides. So those things are not connected. We are subsidizing this pollution and paying for it in another way. Another, ex- another piece of the framework that I suggest is that the long view must guide all decision-making and accounting. And I'll tell a brief story. Uh, most of us remember the huge floods in Thailand in 2011. And those, they were terrible, and they absolutely 
caused havoc in the country. The main cause of those floods was not a big bad storm. It was deforestation that had happened over the 20 years prior because there was no ground soil left. There was no topsoil left from the deforestation, and there was no soil to hold on to the big water. So that flood became went from a very bad storm to a catastrophic one. And it was caused by actions from 20 years before. But here's the kicker. Because of factories in Thailand for Toyota and Honda, there were tens of thousands of people put out of work in Kentucky, Singapore, and the Philippines. So, and Toyota lost 2.5% of its annual output. So deforestation from 20 years ago caused total financial as well as environmental havoc 20 years later. And the people who cut down the trees certainly did not pay for it. That, again, is a connection to be made. The third prong is that government plays a vital role in catalyzing clean technology and growth while preventing environmental destruction. So we are probably the easiest place we can imagine governmental input is in the computer industry where the government's funding and R&D developed the Internet, and then in the 19, late 70s and early 80s, when the microchip industry was being clobbered by Japan, the government stepped in, the U.S. government stepped in and supported the industry with a variety of funding and R&D cooperative efforts, which obviously led to trillions of dollars of successful business. And Tesla, which is now leading the pack in electric car development and uh, technology, all along the way, they were helped with government research and government funding. Hmm. Let me, uh, I'll quote back to you something you quote in your one of your Huffington Post uh, articles. Uh, this is the argument against government um, getting involved in a big way, which I think we'd all agree government will have to get involved in a big way to uh, to level the playing field for businesses. If uh, you know, your I think it's uh, your point number two is to be implemented, and of course, uh, point number three. Uh, this is you quote uh, William Kovacs, senior vice president of U.S. Chamber of Commerce, in um, testimony before Congress. He says regulations impact jobs in three ways: they impose significant compliance costs that divert resources away from other needs. They can cripple or even destroy industries, and they can impose such complexity that they discourage business expansion and job creation. And that's you certainly do hear those arguments. And I'm sure if uh, you were successful in getting government to implement some of the, you know, s- some of the policies that you want, uh, you probably hear these complaints uh, amplified. Uh, absolutely, Ab- you know. And uh, I'm looking at this latest study right now on the cost of. Regulating air pollution costs about $7 billion a year, and um, the benefits range from $19 billion to $167 billion. That's a huge uh, spread, and um, plus there is a huge benefit due to reduced mortality, saving tens of thousands of dollars, lives a year. I think that you... You obviously you've got to have compliance, and I'm not for stupid regulation. I'm not for compliance that is not business friendly. I am absolutely pro business in that I get you need thriving business and a thriving economy to have a thriving country and world. Uh, I don't want business to. Uh, go out of business. I want business to be incentivized to do the best they can do in terms of environmental activity. And loads of businesses agree with that. They are in a funny position in that most of them are scared to step forward and say, tax us for this or monitor us for this. But in fact, just a reminder, in 2009, when 
the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was fighting the cap-and-trade bill that was in the Congress, there was a total split. So Apple, Levi's, Nike, Johnson & Johnson, Exelon, many iconic American companies, including Exelon, the largest utility, said to the Chamber of Commerce, you do not speak for us. Some of them left the chamber, several of them left the board. Exxon, Shell, Peabody, BP were pushing for the Chamber of Commerce's position to fight a cap-and-trade law. But huge, huge, iconic American businesses stood up and said, no, we want to pay for carbon. And so there is not one business line on this hmm. at all. Uh, you're calling for an end to economic invisibility of nature, and you say the crucial innovation of 21st century counting systems must be to correctly price uh, preservation, use, and destruction of natural resources. And, and earlier in the program, you've pointed out that a business like PepsiCo, who maybe would want to move forward on this, you can't get too far out ahead because you'll be penalized, the bottom line. Exactly, which in my mind amounts to insanity, honestly. I, I think... How could we be so short-sighted as a country to, here is a company doing something fantastic, and they're penalized? In, in what universe is that okay? That is not good regulation. That is not good accounting. It's not good for anybody, not for PepsiCo, not for the world, not for your taxes, not for your health. It's good for nothing. So... Uh, I think we should hurry up and change those rules, and I'm happy to say that there is a broad global movement of financial service organizations, the biggest companies, and many, many other, the biggest financial service companies as well as huge multinational corporations and many uh, civil society organizations are pushing to change these rules of accounting. Yeah. But it's not easy. It's very complex. It's not an easy move. But until we manufacture the political will so that government understands, that people understand, that they are, as your listener Charles said, already paying a carbon tax yeah. just in the wrong place. What about the argument? I hear this uh, against, um, you know, uh, solutions for climate change, um, that uh, if you take away some of those subsidies, that, you know, the government is subsidizing some of this, uh, and, and you shift some of those costs um, to, to make them to be true costs, then uh, perhaps some of those who can least afford to pay those new costs uh, will be hurt the most. I think that's probably true. I, I, don't, I don't think... I, I don't think Anytime anyone says, oh, we're going to make this change and it's going to be a snap or it's going to be easy, it's not going to be a snap. However, I think that there are solutions for that. So would you rather subsidize a terrible agricultural or energy or water system Would you that you then have to pay huge costs for in the future? Or would you rather subsidize poor people in the transition to a new kind of economic, fundamental, economic fundamentals? It seems to me, yes, we're going to have to do that. It's going to be expensive. But as we are already paying, I think that you know, everybody's mother and father said to them, there is no free lunch. We think we're, we're not paying. We are paying. When Hurricane Sandy, you know, causes an entire region to become lifeless and then costs hundreds of billions of dollars, a lot of it being rebuilt just as it was before, we are already paying. I think that that is the most important message for us to understand. When you buy a cheap T-shirt that is part of China's environmental degradation, 
it's not a you know would you rather pay seven dollars for the t-shirt or five dollars for the t-shirt i may be in the minority i would rather pay seven dollars for the t-shirt and have the air and water in china be clean because currently the system is such that china could be in serious trouble if it moves into total water insecurity, which will destabilize the globe. Hmm. A reminder, we're talking with Amy Larkin. The book is Environmental Debt, The Hidden Costs of a Changing Global Economy. Amy Larkin is coming to Utah for appearances at Utah State University next week, and we have her for the hour. You can reach us with your question or comment at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. The number again, 1-800-826-1495. Our uh, call, uh, first caller for the program is uh, Kathleen in Springdale. Kathleen, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, good morning. Um, good morning. Good morning. All Things Considered, uh, Bill McKibben was on discussing a similar type of frustration with obvious, uh, I mean, for many, many years, people have known that participation in government, uh, that cleaning up the environment is the right thing to do. But there are companies that don't want to play ball, like particularly high-profit companies in energy, i.e. the oil industry. So Bill McKibben the other day brought up a point that I thought was really great. Um, and I was wondering if Miss um, Larkin had thought about it, and that was that he and a couple other people are starting movements to having universities and individuals with investments to divest from oil companies and other companies that won't play ball, so to speak, um, with some of the suggestions that Miss Larkin's making, such as cost environmental costs being incorporated into the cost of the item or less profit for the for the board members and more profit for the environment. So the idea of using the model from the 80s of divesting from South Africa, you know, made a switch. So I was just wondering if she had thought about that or if she wrote about that in her book. I, I, I think I mentioned it in the book, and I think it's great. And um, I think it's the appropriate thing to do. I think... Uh, there, as, as I mentioned before, there are companies that are fighting very hard to keep the status quo, and obviously those are largely oil and coal companies. And you know, in my first choice would be to incentivize companies to make more money going for renewables than they w- would for going for fossil fuels because. One could do that with true accounting. And I think that there is set to be a big crash, you know, as big companies change. And the we all know that the amount of investment in infrastructure, global employment, uh, from shipping to pipelines to gas stations to utilities to power plants we're talking a huge portion of the world's economy so shifting that will not be easy but the urgency it is urgent that we make this shift so would divestment is a great piece of the puzzle in trying to do that but urgency is what we have. And I, of course, would rather us do that using smart business policy as opposed to upending the world, because the world is being upended by extreme weather and the effects of climate. And, Tom, I I just want to add one thing. Um, I want to bring in two of my heroes, uh, which is, uh, of course, Star Trek. And um, Mr. S- in, in Star Trek for the Wrath of Khan, uh, Spock, no, actually, it, it's the one with the whales. I bo- it might be the Wrath of Khan. Um, uh, I think Mr. Spock to says Earth. to Captain Kirk, to hunt a species to extinction is not logical. 
And Captain Kirk responds and says, ironic, when man was killing these creatures, he was destroying his own future. Mm, yeah. And I think we all see this every day when we watch the news, and we all see the urgency of it. And I think that every way that we can make this move, right now it's death by a thousand cuts, but it is also recovery by a thousand steps. So absolutely divestment is part of this. We're going to take another brief break. Uh, thanks, by the way, Kathleen uh, in Springdale for the for the call. Appreciate that. Uh, you can uh, get your call in. We have another five or six minutes left with uh, Amy Larkin. The book is Environmental Debt, The Hidden Costs of a Changing Global Economy. Amy Larkin is advocating for uh, bringing forward and uh, accounting for environmental debt. It's, it's, it's going to cost us, and it does cost us, uh, anyway, we need to, uh, to tackle it head on, she's saying. And uh, the number that you can reach us is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. Did you know that graduates of instructional technology and learning sciences can land high-paying jobs in several different sectors? including K-12 in higher education, corporate America, government, and government subcontractors. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting the regional premiere of Peter and the Starcatcher with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Amy Larkin. She's an author of Environmental Debt. She's an entrepreneur, a former director of Greenpeace Solutions, and uh, she runs a consulting firm now. Uh, and she'll be coming to Utah. A couple of appearances on the Utah State University campus. First of those is on Thursday, October 3rd, for the Partners in Business Operational Excellence Conference for the USU Huntsman School of Business. That's in the Eccles Conference Center on the USU campus, uh, and it's uh, 9.40 a.m. and 1.15 p.m. as part of that conference. Then later that evening, Thursday, October 3rd, for the USU Quinney College of Natural Resources in Engineering 103, 6 p.m., a presentation free and open to the public. We just have about five minutes left with Amy Larkin. You can join us if you would like at 1-800-826-1495 or at upraxis at gmail.com. I'd like to follow up on uh, Kathleen's question about divestment. Uh, of course, it's a good idea to put your money where your principles are. That's uh, fine, perhaps, if you're buying from Patagonia, say, or some other environmentally friendly companies. But uh, you still need electricity, for example. And uh, unless you go off the grid, I wonder how, how best to, uh, to put that into practice on a personal level. Well, on a personal level, each of us could probably lower our energy usage by 10% pretty easily, actually, just by being conscious. So the individual piece of this is not minor. So 10% is what would allow a lot of utilities to not build another plant because the biggest problem is in the peak load area. So everything from not using your dishwasher during the day to turning off all of your entertainment and office systems to, we all know about vampire power, to just not using stupid energy like it's 65 degrees out and instead of opening the window you put on the air conditioner or it's 25 degrees out and you have it up to 75 in the house. Uh, those are some obvious things to do. But I think that the biggest change, that is, I think the hardest change for Americans is honestly in the transportation area, where on my end, 
I don't have a car. I live in New York City, but I fly everywhere. And um, it's not great. In fact, it's terrible. And I haven't figured out an alternative, but I would love to incentivize businesses or have my government funding go for the best R&D for lower greenhouse emissions flying. One of the things that I suggest in the book is something called patent pooling, which has been done many, many times, where we all know there, you know, the maximizing of alternative energy uh, is being researched everywhere. Well, imagine if you found a framework for IBM and GE to collaborate. But the biggest thing comes back to my original point. Let's pay for the cost of energy when we buy the energy, not when we pay for the environmental impacts of that energy use. That will alter what we use as our energy source and our behavior so that we can serve better. That is, it all starts with the better policy rules and business rules. And it comes back to us, our behavior and our political participation. That's a good place to end it. We've come full circle there. You can hear more from Amy Larkin if you're going to be in northern Utah next week. Uh, she'll be speaking on the Utah State University campus, first in the Eccles Conference Center uh, on October 3rd, Thursday of next week, 9.40 a.m. and 1.15 p.m. as part of the USU Huntsman School of Business Partners in Business Operational Excellence Conference. Then that evening, Thursday evening, October 3rd, 6 p.m. in Engineering Room 103, a presentation for the USU Quinney College of Natural Resources. The book is Environmental Debt, The Hidden Costs of a Changing Global Economy. Amy Larkin, a pleasure. Thank you so much. A pleasure for me. Thank you, Tom. Coming up bye-bye. is uh, uh, goodbye. Uh, StoryCorps is next. Then uh, Brian Earl in with the Zesty Garden. Tomorrow, of course, Sherry Quinn in with Science Questions. We hope you'll uh, join us then. On Monday, by the way, I'll be joined by Mark Fiji. We'll be talking about how the natural world has affected United States history. For uh, producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. My name is Jeremy Larson. I'm 43 years old. Today's date is May the 17th, 2013. We're recording in sunny St. George, Utah, and I'm here with my friend Robert Keller. Hi, my name is Robert Keller. I am 27 years old, and I'm here with Jeremy Larson, who is a friend of mine and a co-band member. We've talked a little bit about mental illness before we got started here. Mm -hmm. Are you comfortable talking about when you started to feel symptoms of mental illness? Um, when I in my tw- early twenties, mainly, yeah, I started uh, thinking people could read my mind or whatever, just irrational things. Just from then on, I've ca- I'm kind of recovered from it now, pretty right. much. I've got really good control of it now, but nice. for a while there, I I really didn't have very much control at all. I was kind of out of control in my early twenties. Yeah. So what what would you um, attribute your recovery to? My recovery um, attribute to mainly the people like you and. The people at Southwest and and uh, the people that have just they know how to deal with mental illness in a really good way. That's not you know overly controlling, but right. it's understanding. But they treat you like a person, right? Too, you know? And hopefully, you're able to maintain your individuality. Yeah, you know, like you're well, not... that's exactly what I mean when they when I say they treat you like a person. Yeah, they, they don't treat you like just another number. They yeah, you know, they realize that we all have our own quirks. Southwest is a behavioral health center it's like uh it's the people who are addicted to drugs people who are schizophrenic bipolar different mental illnesses and they they have several i mean they've got therapists there they've got a psychiatrist there to prescribe the medications and stuff day treatment programs yeah. which we're involved with now the elevate program i mean we're the psychotropics and we have mental illnesses but we get along really good and we encourage each other and that's why we play good music that's i know there's a like lot there. of give and take with the psychotropics there's a yeah. lot of you know you be patient you let people experiment with what they're coming yeah, yeah. 
So the psychotropics, it, uh, are you afraid of stigma at all by going by that name, the psychotropics? Not at all. I think it just sounds, I mean, it, it sounds cool enough to where it makes up for it, you know. Exactly. I mean, it does maybe sound a little cliche because of our having, you know, to take psychotropic drugs. But, right. But it applies to rock and roll so much. It does. So um, stigma. Oh, yeah. Does that, yeah. What, are you, what are your thoughts on stigma? Like, that, that's a big thing. Sometimes in life, like people will see me coming, and they'll be like, they want to move to the side over to the side of the sidewalk. They don't want to even be around me because right. they they think um, I don't know what they think. I don't even want to know what they think, but yeah. I don't think it's anything good. You know, my wife came up with a interesting point the other day. She um, um, she was commenting on social skills, and uh, usually people will say, "Well, people with mental illness." lack social skills well the reality is it's the people who are moving to the side of the road who don't want to be near you who are lacking the social skills yeah you know what i mean that's a good point the the person that has a stigma and i've had stigma too i mean i'm sure i'm not any better than anyone else when it comes to that but it's just everyone has something that they should work on right uh the challenges that we have are mainly mental challenges (laughs) yeah uh we're we're based at a mental health kind of a facility it's like a day it's a day program and uh our our challenges have just been with with mental illnesses but we we've got it under control pretty well you know we've we've just had to have you know a little extra time to get things together a little bit more than most bands right i'm kind of seeing that as a strength though the the challenges that we're facing and that we're overcoming i really think that that's going to be a strength of the band Maybe you're right about like you know about a, a people that are challenged maybe are a little bit stronger in some ways absolutely you know people that get it easy all the time. I yeah. mean, how do you get strong if you get it easy all the time? Exactly. <laughs> and in that strength, you you become like a light to other people. Yeah. I mean, people can look at you. I and guess. Say, I'm, I doubt that. You would you would hate to. I'm more like a dark streak in most people's well, mind. <laughs> But sometimes it takes the darkness to highlight the light. Yeah, yeah, it does. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Mm-hmm.